Welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church Cardiff. We are a multi-site church longing for God's kingdom to come in order to restore the city and renew the nation of Wales. During the coronavirus outbreak, we are not meeting on a Sunday, but you can stay connected with us on YouTube, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Vineyard Church Cardiff. Each Sunday, we will be streaming a full-length service and providing resources for the kids. And across the week, we're putting up loads of content. You can find out more on our social media or at cardiffvineyard.org forward slash online church. Here's this week's talk from Northside Pastor Ian Douglas. Hello, Vineyard Church Cardiff. I hope you are well. For the last few weeks, we have been in a series in the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. And I'm going to be continuing this series again today. Now, I don't know about you, I kind of love this story because it doesn't paint a picture of life being perfect without any problems. Joseph's life certainly wasn't always plain sailing, was it? And as we read through Joseph's story, we get to see the ups and downs, the highs and lows of his life. Now, I actually wanted to call this series Joseph, Life is a Roller Coaster, but I guess the team were concerned that it sounded a bit like the gospel according to Ronan Keating, so that idea got shot down. But I thought that Alice put it really well a couple of weeks ago in the first talk in this series when she said that life is like a dot-to-dot picture. I almost said life is like a box of chocolates there. Bit of a Forrest Gump reference. That's not what she said. She said life is like a dot-to-dot picture. You can go from one stage to the next and you can't always see the picture that's being created, can you? And I found this idea really helpful that often it's only when we look back that we're able to see and understand why we went through something and what God was doing through it. So I like Joseph's story because it gives us something we can probably all relate to, that life is full of highs and lows. And for Joseph, there really are some low points, aren't there? First, he gets thrown into a pit and sold in slavery by his own brothers. Then he gets accused of rape and thrown into prison. But we see repeatedly throughout the story that God is with Joseph. And he grants him favour wherever he is. And we also see that Joseph remains faithful to God in all the highs and the lows. Now I don't know about you, but as I read this account of his life, I can't help but wonder, how? How did you cope, Joseph? How did you remain faithful? Were you ever tempted to turn your back on God? Did your faith ever waver? Scripture gives us a good overview of his life and an outline of the events that took place, but It doesn't fill in the details of his emotions, does it? It doesn't give us his conversations with God or how he processed the trauma of everything that he experienced. Yet what it does demonstrate is that one way or another, it is possible to remain close and obedient to God in the midst of life's challenges. Today, we're going to look at the next chapter, Joseph's time in prison, and consider how we can remain faithful to God even when we experience low points ourselves. And I've called this talk Faithful When We Feel Forgotten. Now at the end of chapter 39, which we looked at last week, we find out that Joseph had been thrown into prison after being wrongfully convicted of raping Potiphar's wife. It's a pretty bleak moment, isn't it? And definitely a serious low point in Joseph's life. But we're told in verse 21 that the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted Joseph favour in the eyes of the prison warden. And in much the same way that Joseph rose through the ranks in Potiphar's house and was given significant responsibility there, in prison, he's also put in charge of his fellow prisoners because the Lord was with him. So what happened next? 
Well, Genesis 40 begins by telling us that sometime later, both the chief cupbearer and the head baker offended Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And it doesn't tell us what they did. Maybe the cupbearer drank all of Pharaoh's wine. Perhaps one day whilst he was taking a sip of the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, he thought, ooh, this is very good, and drank a bit too much. Maybe the baker baked something with a soggy bottom. Hey, it can happen, can't it? We've all seen how upset Paul Hollywood gets when there's a soggy bottom on Bake Off. The look of disgust on his face and disappointment in those piercing blue eyes. He doesn't need to say anything, but you know what's going on. You know what he's thinking. You amateur. You should be ashamed of yourself. A Hollywood handshake for that. Don't be ridiculous. Get that poor excuse for Bake out of my sight. And if that's how poor Hollywood reacts to a bad bake on a televised baking competition then imagine how the king of Egypt would react to a similar demonstration of incompetence from his own, chief cu- his own chief baker. The truth is, we can only speculate about what they did to offend and upset Pharaoh. We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter in the context of this story. But whatever they did, they both made Pharaoh really angry. So angry that he had both of them thrown into prison. And in fact, they're thrown into the same prison that Joseph was being kept in. And I think it's worth pointing out in this moment that, like I'd said, the chapter begins by telling us that time had passed since Joseph was thrown into prison. It says some time later, time had passed. But let's just be clear, we're not talking days or weeks or months. It's likely been years. Joseph has been in prison for years. He's 28 years old at this point. It's been over 10 years since his brothers sold him into slavery. The years of his youth are passing him by. He was a young man with dreams about the future. He'd literally had dreams from God about his future, visions of what his life was going to look like. And then things started to go wrong. For a while, he'd been serving faithfully under Potiphar in a foreign land, but then he suffered another setback, and he ends up being thrown into prison. Surely... This wasn't in line with the vision that God had for his life. We've all probably experienced something like this at one time or another. You feel like you've heard clearly from God about something that you should do, or a decision that you need to make. You say step out in faith, you act upon that vision that God's given you, and then something goes wrong that seems to throw you off course. It's often in these moments that we can begin to doubt God, isn't it? We might doubt his plans, doubt his goodness, doubt his power, or even doubt his presence. And you might feel like you've been going through something like this lately and having these kinds of doubts. And I just want to say to you, I can promise you this, that you are not alone in feeling that way. But when it comes to Joseph, we've learned enough about his character by this point in the story to know that everything that goes wrong in his life, that for everything that's gone wrong in his life so far, he's managed to remain faithful to God. And Paul talked about this last week. Joseph makes good decisions. He's given positions of authority and he clearly has integrity. But I'm convinced that there must have been nights when the doubts began to creep in. Moments when Joseph questioned where God was and when would his fortunes change. He was only human after all. Even Jesus experienced moments of anguish and doubt during his life, especially in the build up to his death. So I'm sure that they were there for Joseph too. They were just hidden somewhere between the spaces and the lines in scripture. Joseph's in prison. 
He's been accused of something he didn't do. It's just not fair, is it? This isn't how things were supposed to turn out. So here he is, slumping into another low point in his life, when suddenly Pharaoh throws two of his officials in jail with him, and Joseph seems to have been thrown a lifeline. We're told in chapter 40 that one night the cupbearer and the baker both have, both have dreams. And have you noticed how dreams play a significant role throughout Joseph's story? From scripture we learn that dreams are one of the ways that God speaks to people. We know that God spoke to Joseph through a dream in chapter 37, and here he speaks to the cupbearer and the baker through dreams as well. And in chapter, and then in the next chapter, we'll find out that God is going to speak to Pharaoh through another dream. Now the dreams in this story, they're not just random. This is God speaking. And because God speaking, was speaking to people through these dreams, the dreams had significance. They meant something. And we're told that the cupbearer and the baker had different dreams and that each dream had its own meaning. So the next morning when they woke up, they were confused and they were also sad because they didn't understand what their dreams meant. So Joseph invites them to tell him their dreams. The cupbearer goes first and tells Joseph his and he gets a good interpretation from Joseph. Joseph says uh, he interprets the dream and predicts that within three days, Pharaoh will set the cupbearer free and restore him to his position as chief cupbearer. This is great news for the cupbearer. He probably high-fives Joseph, thinking, get in, what a result. But then Joseph asks something of him. In verse 14, Joseph says to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. Joseph sees his opportunity. These two guys have ended up in prison with him. God's spoken to them through their dreams, and Joseph's noticed this. And Joseph's been faithful in giving the interpretation. Surely this is God at work, providing him with a way out. Then the baker approaches him, thinking, Ooh, that was a good interpretation you gave the cupbearer. I wonder what you've got for me. And he asked Joseph to interpret his dream too. So Joseph interprets the baker's dream, but this time the interpretation is way less positive. In fact, it's terrible news for the baker. Joseph tells the baker that the meaning of his dream is that within three days, Pharaoh is going to have him executed. You would not want to be the baker in that moment, would you? I mean, imagine, I imagine he was probably like, are you sure, Joseph? Are you sure that's what it means? Do you want to interpret it again? Don't you think it means the same thing that you told the cupbearer about his dream? And Joseph was probably like, no, I'm sorry, mate. It means what it means. The passage doesn't tell us anything about what happens during the next couple of days. But you can imagine the tension in that cell, can't you? Especially for the baker. But in the next few verses, but in the final few, vers few verses of the chapter, we're told how Joseph's interpretations of the two dreams play out exactly as he said they would. On the third day, the cupbearer is restored to his position by Pharaoh, but the baker is executed just as Joseph had predicted. Joseph proves that he is operating in his prophetic gifting. It's another sign that God was with him. But it's the final verse in this chapter that is significant for what I want to speak into for the remainder of this talk. Remember that Joseph said to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. But 
Verse 23 tells us this. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Ouch. Oh man, it's just, it's so painful, isn't it? You've got to feel for Joseph here, don't you? Just when it looked like his circumstances might be about to change, he suffers another setback. He's forgotten by the cupbearer. He doesn't mention him to Pharaoh and just leaves Joseph to rot away in prison. And by this point, you could forgive Joseph for, for maybe having some doubts and wondering whether God had forgotten about him too. And if we're really honest, I think we can all experience moments where it's hard to see how God is at work in our lives. Times when we feel like God has forgotten about us. And that might be the feeling that resonates with you at the moment. Some of us won't be feeling that way right now, which is great. That's good. What a blessing. But at some point in life, all of us are likely to experience those moments, those low moments. It's inevitable. All of us are likely to experience trauma of some kind, to varying degrees, depending on our circumstances. And right now, in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, this worldwide moment of crisis, there will be many of us who are facing an extremely challenging moment in our lives. And if that's not you right now, then I suspect there are almost certainly people you know who are battling through something difficult. Over the last few months, jobs have been lost, businesses are struggling, families are unable to see each other, important events have been cancelled, treatments have been put on hold, plans are up in the air, and in the midst of all that's going on, you might feel like your dreams have been shattered. And you might find yourself asking the question, God, where are you in this? Where are you? Last week, I thought Paul did a fantastic job looking at how Joseph was able to remain faithful and resist temptation because God was with him. But my question for us today is this. How do we stay faithful when we feel forgotten? How do we remain hopeful when our hopes and dreams appear to be falling apart? How do we keep trusting God even when he seems distant or absent? And I believe that this is what God wants me to talk about today because I feel that for many of us, this, is, this can often be the place where we find ourselves as we trudge through some of life's trials and struggles. As I mentioned earlier, one of the challenges in reading through Joseph's story is that the Bible doesn't tell us much about the emotions he felt when things took a turn for, a, for the worse. We're not given any insight into Joseph's prayer life either, or the conversations that he had with God in the midst of his troubles. And we're not told how he processed the trauma of all the devastating things that happened to him. So where can we turn to try and learn how to stay faithful to God when we feel forgotten? In the book of Philippians, in the New Testament, we hear the advice of the Apostle Paul, who, like Joseph, found himself in prison. And in chapter 4, Paul reveals that he has learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation. In verses 4 to 7, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what is the secret of being content in every and every situation? According to Paul, it's praise, 
prayer and thankfulness. And I can't argue with that. I'm, I'm not going to argue with Paul. He's right. When we're in moments of despair and feel like things are falling apart, if we look around at our circumstances, it can be easy to feel overwhelmed and hopeless. But by praying and praising God for who he is, we can lift our eyes up and shift the focus off ourselves and be reminded of who is in control, that God is in control. But being really honest now, it doesn't always feel possible, does it, to begin with praise, prayer and thankfulness. I think there are moments, I think there are, that there are moments in life when we just don't feel able to identify the things that we're thankful for, when actually it just feels like life is really tough. And I think that there's a danger that if we always force ourselves into a posture of thanksgiving without processing our pain and our grief, sometimes we just shove our emotions down and put them in a box to fester. We put up a facade and say, I'm fine, because we think that's the spiritual thing to do. But sometimes... The best response when we're feeling in despair is the spiritual practice of lament. This might be something you, you're familiar with, um, or it might be something you've never heard of before. The spiritual practice of lament. The practice of lament can be found in many parts of the Bible. Did you know that over a third of the Psalms are laments? There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, in which Israel weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. And even Jesus lamented in the final hours of his life. So what is this practice of lament? Lament is a form of prayer. Putting it simply, that's what it is. It's the process of bringing our stuff before God. I've heard someone refer to it as the license to make spiritual complaints. But it's more than just an expression of our sorrows or a venting of our emotions. As we lament, we talk to God about our pain. And it has a unique purpose. Trust. Lament is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, frustrations and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God and trust in him. Sharon Garlow Brown, who is an author and spiritual director, describes the practice of lament as the spiritual discipline that helps us return to the love of God when we doubt the love of God. I'll say it again. The spiritual di- it's the spiritual discipline that helps us return to the love of God when we doubt the love of God. If you don't feel like you can bring thanksgiving and praise to God, just bring what is honest. Be real with him. Psalm 22 is a great example of this. In Psalm 22, David is crying out to God as he flees from his enemies. He cries out in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, so far from my cries of anguish? In Alice's talk a few weeks ago, she mentioned that the first question in the Bible is God asking Adam and Eve, Where are you? And lament is like a reversal of that, where we can ask God, Where are you in this, Lord? So maybe for you, if you're going through something right now, perhaps the place to start is with the practice of lament. And there's a clear process to lament that can be seen in many of the Psalms, where the writer often starts in the pit, but ends up in praise. This is true in Psalm 22 that I've just mentioned, and Psalm 13 is also a really helpful example of this. And I just want to highlight four steps in the practice of lament 
that can be found and seen really clearly in Psalm 13 and in many other Psalms as well. Step one is this, turn to God. The point is that we, when we experience pain and suffering, we need to choose to talk to God about what is happening. In verse one of Psalm 13, David cries out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Step two, bring your complaint. Every lament features some kind of lament. But rather than just venting our anger, biblical lament humbly and honestly identifies the pain, questions and frustrations that are raging within us. And in verse two, David says, how long must I ask? Uh, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy will my enemy triumph over me? Step three, ask boldly for help. Seeking God's help while we're in pain is an act of faith. Sorrow isn't dealt with. Sorrow that isn't dealt with can result in a deadly silence as we give in to despair or a denial. But lament invites us to dare to hope in God's promises as we ask Him for help. In verses three to four, David says. Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome and my foes will rejoice when I fall. And finally, step four, choose to trust. This is the destination for our laments. All roads lead here. More than the stages of grief, lament moves us to renew our commitment to trust in God as we navigate the brokenness of life. In verses 5 to 6, David proclaims, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Turn to God, bring your complaint, ask boldly for help, and choose to trust. That is the basic process for the spiritual practice of lament. And I would encourage you to have a go. Maybe start by reading through some of the Lament Psalms. I've mentioned Psalm 13 and Psalm 22, but there are many others you can turn to as well. And as you read through them, hopefully you'll be able to identify and notice these four steps that I've mentioned. But also you'll you'll potentially find that you just connect with some of the language that's in them. It's people pouring out their hearts to God. And you might just find that you resonate with what they're saying. And then my suggestion is, have a go at writing out your own lament. Whatever it is that you're going through at the moment, see if you can put it into words by using these steps. You might just want to use them as a structure. If you're finding something difficult at the moment and you feel abandoned by God, I think this practice will be helpful. Lament helps us to run towards God when our sorrows tempt us to run away from him. And you know what? We have a saviour who knows what it is to suffer. Jesus himself lamented in his final moments. He echoed David's words from that Psalm 22. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have a saviour who knows what it it is to feel forgotten and forsaken by God. Jesus had enjoyed the closest intimacy with his father, yet in those final hours on the cross, he experienced the struggle and distress of feeling abandoned. Our experiences may lead us into times of silence and uncertainty about God, times of questioning and desperation. 
But the cross and the resurrection give us the final answer and remind us that we can trust in God. There have been times over the last few months when I've certainly felt frustrated by this situation and I've felt distant from God at times as well. But just because I'm not feeling it, just because I'm in a moment where I'm not aware of his love, his presence or his favour, doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean that he's not with me and, or that he's not for me. In Romans 8, Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And notice this, Paul doesn't say that we are conquerors through Christ who loves us. He says that it is through Christ who loved us. Do you notice that? It's past tense. And that's intentional from Paul, because Paul's not referring to a present and fuzzy feeling of love. He's talking about an event. The cross stands as the defining moment in history and an ever-present reminder that God has already proved his love for us. So even when we don't feel the love of God in the midst of our troubles, even when things seem to be going wrong and God doesn't feel near, we can always look to the cross and know that he loves us because he sent his son to die for us and Jesus was obedient unto death. You know, one of the remarkable things that we see through the story of Joseph's life is that it is possible to remain faithful to God in the midst of life's challenges. Even when our hopes and our dreams feel like they're falling apart, even when people wrong us, even when we feel forgotten, we can hold on to the truth that we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who died for us. We have a God who, when we find ourselves in a place of despair, invites us to trust him, to draw near to him, and to pour out our hearts to him. I'd like to end this talk by inviting you to spend a moment in reflection. I mentioned that there are many psalms in the Old Testament that are songs of lament. And yet we don't really find that many of the worship songs that we sing today are laments, do we? This is something that the band Wren Collective noticed a few years ago. And following the Manchester Arena bombing in 2017, they wrote a song called Weep With Me. It's a beautiful song. And they wrote it to try and help us wrestle with some of our struggles. And as we draw near to God and proclaim the truth about his love. The song's going to play now. And I just invite you to take a moment and be honest before him. Whatever it is that you're going through at the moment, let this be a moment to come to God and be real.
so much for joining us remember you can tune in to our youtube channel on sundays from 10 30 for our online church or connect with us through facebook and instagram to hear from us throughout the week 
We would love to help you find out more about Jesus or grow in your faith. So if you have any questions, get in touch on social media or email info at cardiffvineyard.org. If you're local to Cardiff, we would love for you to get involved in a small group, which is just a small group of people meeting throughout the week across the city. Of course, meeting online at the moment. They are the heartbeat of this church, and now more than ever at this time of social distancing, they are so important for you to stay connected to church and grow in your faith. Head to our website, cardiffvineyard.org, and hit the small groups tab at the top of the page to find out more. If you're listening from further afield, thanks so much for tuning in. We're really glad you're here. But we would also love to help you get connected with a local church where you are. So email us at info at cardiffvineyard.org and we would love to help. Thanks again for tuning in this week. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.